The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Uh, We are several weeks in our study of the book of 1 Peter. We're going verse by verse. And we've been discovering week after week that this book was written to people who have a lot in common with us today. 1 Peter was written to people who were hungry for God, but struggling to figure out how to experience Him, how to walk with Him, how to grow in a deeper relationship with Him in the midst of a complex and challenging world, a world that seems um, out to get them at times, or at least repressive and marginalizing to their faith at times. And I know there are many people just like that here today. In fact, I hope that is why you're here this morning, that you want to experience God and have a real relationship with Him that forms and shapes you into a person that is far superior to who you are now, so much so that if you met them in the future, you might not even recognize yourself in them, but you would like them. And by superior, I mean a more loving person, a person that is abundantly joyful and they have just a joyful buoyancy to their life, no matter what their circumstances are, that joy kind of keeps them afloat. A person that is peaceful in the midst of all kind of, kind of antagonism in our culture and a lot of different, you know, everybody's upset about something and everybody's kind of, you know, uh, pointing the finger at others, that you have this a sense of peace that can bring peace to certain situations and relationships, that you have a patience that kind of passes understanding. You're kind. You're just good. You're full of faith. You're gentle. And in spite of all those things, you're also just disciplined. Now, isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Well, Peter, in our text this morning, He calls that, growing into that person, that growing up into those fruits of the Spirit that I just listed, growing into that, he calls that in our text this morning, growing up into our salvation, becoming what we already are, becoming the person Christ has already made us by his salvation, by us being born again, and becoming the spiritually mature person who has the fruit of the Spirit operating and growing in their life. Now, I I hope all of us in this room would say, yeah, that's me. I want that for me. I don't know how to get there necessarily, but I want to grow into that person. I want five years from from now, 10 years from now, to be a far deeper person spiritually, right? To, to, To be more gentle, more kind, more humble, to have the fruits of the Spirit. But what's interesting to me is the way Peter goes about encouraging these believers to grow up this morning. 
Peter isn't a coach. He's not yelling and screaming. He's not putting all this pressure on their wills and telling them that if they just try harder and put more effort in, they will come out on top. Actually, isn't that basically what everyone else in our culture is saying these days? Man up. Woman up. You've got to learn to embrace the grind. Put the work in. Put the effort in. Embrace the suck. Make it happen. Honestly, as a person who's built much of his life on this mentality, I get really tired of it. I can barely listen to a motivational speaker these days without triggering my gag reflex. Religious hucksters in our own community, in our own city. Religious hucksters on TV. Selling the next religious high that will fix your current problems. All you got to do is buy their book. And at the bottom, at the foundation, all of it's the same. The motivational videos that you're watching on YouTube, right? The guys telling you how to build your business now, how to get your best life now. The guys in our city that are saying, if you just come to Jesus, he'll make all your life better. They're all the same. And the basic premise is this. Try harder and expect good things from God. The, the, basic, the bottom level, that's what it is. Try harder and expect good things from God. If you want to know God, you have got to put more effort in. That's what they say. This is the mantra of the religious coach. Your relationship with God is completely up to you. They like to say, it's all up to you. He's done everything. It's all up to you. Your relationship with God is up to you. If you want to improve, if you want to mature, if you want to grow up, if you want to know him better, if you want the fruit of the spirit, then this is what you do. Follow these steps. Pray more. Read the Bible more. Go to church more. Be a better person. Now, the only problem with that is that people have been doing it for 20 years and they aren't any better than they were 20 years ago, right? Some of us are meaner than we were 20 years ago. I'm just going to say it, right? Some of us look less like Jesus than we did 20 years ago, right? And we bought into this idea that if I just read more, if I just have a daily devotion, if I just come to church, then somehow I'm on the conveyor belt to be more like Jesus, but that's not how growth in the gospel happens. That's not how mature, spiritual maturity happens. That's the lie of the religious coach. From a certain angle, I get it. It sounds similar to the truth. There's a hint of truth, right? There's a hint of truth there. Therefore, many people confuse this message with the core message of the Bible. But let me tell you this morning in no uncertain terms that do better, try harder, expect great things from God is not the message of the Bible. This is actually the universal message of religion. Religion says, God loves me when I do good things. And the more good things I do, the more God loves me. It's based upon my work and my actions and my willpower. Religious people, they, they feel really guilty and really ashamed much of the time because their walk with, with God is not going like it should. You ask them, how's your prayer life? Not as good as it should be. That's a weird boy. That's weird. All right? 
hey, come to faith. You'll be really ashamed and guilty all the time. Such a compelling message, right? How's your walk with the Lord? Not as good as it should be. Come on, join me. We can all struggle together. Feel really bad about ourselves. You talk to a religious person and you, you actually maybe you confess to them that your life isn't going well. It's not going like you think it should or you don't feel close to God. The first thing they do is they give you a bunch of advice. They'll say, have you tried this or have you tried that or have you tried this other thing? See, religion is basically the never-ending treadmill of good advice. There's always a new trip, trick. There's always a new tip. There's always another book you can read. The Apostle Peter is different. We see that in our text today. And I have to be honest with you this morning, this text makes me a little uncomfortable. When you understand it, I think it will bother you as well. It's just too intimate. It's too personal. It's so contrary to our natural religious impulses that it probably, once you get it, it's going to make you squirm a little bit this morning. Peter rejects the motivational speech of the religious coach and instead adopts the wise, grandfatherly approach of a man who has walked with Jesus his whole life or his whole adult life for many years. He's walked with Jesus for many years. And here's what's even crazier. We, we know this about Peter. In light of Peter's pugnacious past, his abrasiveness, his assertiveness, his kind of, he was kind of like that coach. Let's just take him, coach. Let's take this hill for you right now, right? He was that kind of guy. It makes it even more important and even more kind of hard to believe what Peter has to say for us this morning. I'm going to summarize it as this. Here's where we're going. God has a relentless tenderness toward us, but we will never know it. We will never experience until we see who we are, embrace who we are, and put away who we're not. Okay? Say it again. God has a relentless tenderness toward us, but we'll never know it. We'll never experience it until we see who we are, embrace who we are, and put away who we're we're not. So we're going. Now, first off, let me show you where I'm getting all of this from. Um, first thing we see in our, when we look at our passage in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see Peter reminding the Christians of the reality of their new identity in Christ. That's a, one of the first things he does. And he doesn't say this. Now listen, this is, he doesn't say, you are warriors, right? That's not the analogy Peter uses. He doesn't say, you are competent, you are educated, you are powerful, you are esteemed, you are good looking, right? He doesn't say these things. He doesn't have the the Stuart Smalley approach to discipleship. You know what that is, right? You're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. He doesn't have that. What does Peter say? He says this, look at at verse 2. Like newborn infants. Peter here is building off the reality 
And we've already seen in chapter one that these people have put their faith in Jesus. And what is the term he says? They have been born again. So he's saying you're new. Like an infant, you're new. You aren't just, hear this, a better version of yourself. You didn't just add something to your life. You were a pretty good person and now you're a spiritual person. You just added Jesus. You're a pretty good person and now you're a Christian. You just added something to your life. He says, you have been born again. And here's the reality. Everyone comes into the kingdom as an infant. Now, this is important for us to see. Peter is not calling them spiritually immature. Okay? This isn't some kind of like reverse psychology or put down for their spiritual immaturity. Peter is saying, because it's actually a positive thing. He's saying, because you're newborn infants, do this. It's actually a good thing. Peter is saying, your identity, how you define yourself, has completely changed. And now the first thing you need to know, and the thing that's going to be primary from now on, when it comes to understand how to relate to God and how to grow in your faith, is this. You're an infant. Now, I know that might seem like a put-down, right? I didn't go to college for six years for somebody to call me an infant. I've been working hard to get out of that infant, that immaturity. I've been wanting to be mature and self-sufficient. But it isn't a put-down. Parents, think about the day the doctor put that baby into your arms. Did you think... What a mooch. (laughs) What a little good-for-nothing taker. I can't believe this little baby just thinks they can lay around all day. Eat. Just whenever they need it. Just scream. Just scream and expect me to drop everything and come and grab them. Sit down and scroll Facebook. Come on, really? (laughs) Expects me to do that? Right? None of us thought, well, hold on, Doc. Hold on. I'd like a self-sufficient one, please. Can you get me one a little, more, a little older? Isn't it strange that this little helpless baby, this little human being that is totally and absolutely dependent and totally and absolutely unproductive, the only things they produce, we actually don't like that they produce, Right? is now the absolute apple of your eye. Your most treasured thing in all the world. Something that does nothing but take from you. You expect nothing from them, and yet you love them to the moon. God says, now you are starting to see how much I love you. God says, I gave spiritual birth to you. You are my child. You are my infant. You are my beloved. I delight in you because you're mine, not because of anything you produce. What do infants produce? Waste. Let's just say it like that. I was thinking on this this week, and one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 18, 19, where David says of God, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me 
because he delighted in me. When you get yourself in trouble when you were a teenager and you had to call dad, right? That was not a fun experience most of the time, right? I remember one time on a first date, hit some ice, spun out, went off the side of the road, couldn't get out. I had a stick shift. My first date couldn't drive a stick. It's not a great first date. Call dad. Come help. Right? I was not thinking, he's rescuing me because he delights in me. I was thinking, man, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> David says, I'm a guy who needed rescue. And yet God delighted in me. That's why he rescued me. He rescued me because he delights in me. But here's the problem. These folks here in this text, they're spiritually infants, right? They've been born again. That's their new identity in Christ. They're just as dependent upon God as a newborn baby is of their mother. But the problem is, just like all of us, we're also adults. They've spent their whole lives learning to be independent and responsible, learning to build their identities on their performance, learning to look at their careers and look at their morality and look at their relationships. Listen, as proof that, that God loves them and that they're a good person. Now listen, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I was reading a book this week and it brought attention um, to a story by Flannery O'Connor. And I'd never read the story. I actually had the story at home, but I didn't know it. It's one of her short stories. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to read it a little bit of it for you this morning. Flannery O'Connor, she went to the University of Iowa. She's a famous, uh, famous author. You can look her up later. Uh, let me read this. In Flannery O'Connor's short story called The Turkey, the anti-hero and principal protagonist is a little boy named Ruler. He has a poor self-image because nothing he turns his hand to seems to work. At night in bed, he overhears his parents analyzing him. Ruler's an unusual one, his father says. Why does he always play by himself? His mother answers, how am I to know? One day in the woods, Ruler spots a wild and wounded turkey and sets off in hot pursuit. Oh, if only I can catch it, he cries. He will catch it even if he has to run it out of state. He sees himself triumphantly marching through the front door of his house with the turkey slung over his shoulder and the whole family screaming, look at Ruler with that wild turkey. Ruler, where did you get that turkey? Oh, I caught it in the woods. Maybe you would like me to catch you one sometime. But then the thought flashes across his mind. God will probably make me chase this dang turkey all afternoon for nothing. He knows he shouldn't think that way about God. Yet that's the way he feels. That's the way he feels. Can he help it? He wonders if he is unusual. And Ruler finally captures the turkey when it rolls over dead from a previous gunshot wound. He hoists it on his shoulders and begins his messianic march back to the center of town. He remembers the things he had thought before he got the bird. They were pretty bad, he guesses. Figures God had stopped him before it's too late. He should be thankful. Thank you, God, he says. Much obliged to you. This turkey must weigh 10 pounds. You are mighty generous. Maybe getting the turkey was a sign, he thinks. Maybe God wants him to be a preacher. 
He thinks of Bing Crosby and Spencer Tracy as he enters town with the turkey slung over his shoulder. He wants to do something for God, but he doesn't know what. If anybody were playing the accordion on the street today, he'd give them a dime. It's the only dime he has, but he'd give it to them. He wishes he would see somebody begging. Somebody, suddenly he prays, Lord, send me a beggar. Send me one before I get home. God has put the turkey here. Surely God will send him a beggar. He knows for a fact God will send him one because he is an unusual child. He interests God. Please, one right now. And the minute he says it, an old beggar woman heads straight toward him. His heart stomps up and down in his chest. He springs at the woman, shouting, Here, here! He thrusts the dime into her hand and dashes on without looking back. Slowly, his heart calms, and he begins to feel a new feeling, like being happy and embarrassed at the same time. Maybe, he thinks, he will give all his money to her. He feels as if the ground does not need to be under him any longer. Ruler notices a group of country boys shuffling behind him. He turns around and asks generously, Y'all want to see this turkey? They stare at him. Where'd you get that turkey? I found it in the woods. I chased it dead. See, it's been shot under the wing. Let me see it, one boy says. Ruler hands him the turkey. The turkey's head flies into his face as the country boy slings it up in the air and over his own shoulder and turns. The others turn with him and saunter away. They're a quarter mile away before ruler moves. Finally, they're so far away, he can't even see them anymore. Then he creeps toward home. He walks for a bit and then, noticing it is dark, suddenly begins to run. And Flannery O'Connor's exquisite tale ends with these words. He ran faster and faster, and as he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his legs, and he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. In Ruler, many of us Christians stand revealed, naked and exposed. Our God, it seems, is one who benevolently gives turkeys and capriciously takes them away. When he gives them, it signals his interest in and pleasure with us. We feel close to God and spurred to generosity. When he takes them away, it signals his displeasure and rejection. We feel cast off by God. He is fickle, unpredictable, whimsical. He builds us up only to let us down. He remembers our past sins and retaliates by snatching the turkeys of health, wealth, inner peace, progeny, empire, success, and joy. And the author says, And so we unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings toward ourselves. As Blaise Pascal wrote, God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment. Thus, if we feel hateful toward ourselves, we assume that God feels hateful toward us. Everything is, when he's got the turkey and everything's going well, he knows God's called him, he knows God's with him. When that boy snatches the turkey and takes away, He thinks God's after me. He sprints off home. Listen, this is what it means. This is religion. This is the picture of religion. We think God's in love with the false version of ourself, the more spiritual version. God does not love the false you, the you that you've built through your performance and effort. He does not love the you that you try to be nor the you that you want to be. God loves the real you. The one who needed to be rescued, 
the one who cried out to him, the spiritual infant. And God has a relentless tenderness for us. This might be the hardest thing for us to believe, but we see that through Peter's analogy. In this analogy, who is God? God is like a nursing mother. But we'll never know that tenderness until we begin to relate to him like an infant with his mother. Will we ever, can we please stop trying to earn God's approval through our endless lists of things we should be doing and just accept his relentless tenderness towards us as his children? There is nothing greater than to know that you are God's beloved. Do you know that? Do you really know that you are God's beloved? Well, how do I know? Peter borrows his concept. It's as if, as he's shepherding these people, he's meditating. It's not as if, he is meditating on Psalm 34. This morning, our worship gathering, we opened with Psalm 34. And in Psalm 34, specifically verse 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's where this analogy is coming from. That's why he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. He doesn't ask them, have you believed? He doesn't ask them, did you, you remember, some of, have you seen Jesus? He didn't ask them, have you touched Jesus? He says, have you brought him inside and tasted of him? And he says specifically, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Jonathan Edwards, in commenting on this, he says this, thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man can have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. I could say, what is honey? You can Google it right now and you could read me the Wikipedia description of it. Right? Or you can talk to a person who's tasted it. Or you can taste it yourself. And there's a whole different type of knowledge, right? And some of you, actually, I'm going to say this. Some of you will never know the goodness of honey because you've been feeding yourself on fake honey for so long, right? You go, there's this diet out there called paleo or whatever. You go on the paleo diet and then you get a little scoop of honey. You think you've just entered the sixth realm of heaven, okay? It's so good, right? So good. Peter's saying, have you tasted that the Lord is so good? Every child of God has tasted that he's good. And here is another thing that's surprising. Commentators say this, the logic of verses 2 and 3 is this. Since you have tasted that the Lord is good, long for, or since you have tasted that the Lord is good, crave. How do you grow in your faith? How do you grow in your self-understanding that you are the beloved of God? You are loved right where you are. 
that you really are more loved than you ever thought possible, even though you're deeply flawed and sinful at the same time? You long for, you crave the goodness of the Lord. Where do we see the goodness of the Lord? We see it in the gospel, where Jesus gets treated like a criminal so that we can be adopted as treasured infants. Jesus came to end the religious game. The incessant trying harder to earn your acceptance with God. Religion says do, 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 and your job is never done. And the gospel says it is done. Jesus came and lived the perfect life for us. He gives us his righteousness by faith. And he says that all of our work is already done. Religion is epitomized with Buddha's last words. The last words of Buddha were, strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Only Jesus can give us what our souls are longing for. Only Jesus can give us rest. And Brenning Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says this, our identity rests in God's relentless Tenderness for us revealed in Jesus Christ. A relentless tenderness. This is what my soul was made for. This is what your soul was made for. We should pray, help me see it, help me feel it, help me taste it, Lord. And then once I've tasted that you're good in Jesus towards me, turn it into a craving. I hope you see this in our text this morning. Let's just look. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long crave the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What is the spiritual milk? If you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. The Spiritual milk is the goodness of the Lord. Do we find that in the word of God? Absolutely. Do we find that in the church? Absolutely. But it's tasting the goodness of the Lord. And some of you, listen, some of you are like Jonathan Edwards was saying, you understand it. God is good and God is gracious and God is holy and God is beautiful. But that's not what he's asking. He's saying, have you tasted it? And he's saying, if you have tasted it, that taste will naturally turn into a longing, a craving for more of it. Not a craving for something else. Not a craving for an, okay, now I was really, you know, I I turned to Jesus and I gave him my life and now I want another identity too. I still want the accolades of people. He says, no, no, no. If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord and Jesus, now crave it long for it. You don't need anything else in your life right now. Listen, I know you crave money. I know it. I'm not going to tell you how to get more of it. It won't satisfy you. I know you crave an easier marriage. I'm not going to tell you how to get it because I don't know how. But I know you crave more obedient children to make your life simpler and more comfortable. 
the things that you're craving, I'm not going to give you even though you want me to give you. And some, you could go to some, some places and they will teach you how to get those things. Because I think Peter here is being a good pastor to us and saying, no, 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 no. What you really need is more of the Father's, and this is so weird, I'm sorry I have to say this, more of the Father's spiritual milk. Right? It's just a weird analogy. Sorry. He does it. That's what he's saying. Like, you need to realize who you are. You're an infant and you need more of what you had at the beginning. You've tasted that he's good. You need more. You need to crave the goodness of God found in Jesus. Crave it. That will satisfy your soul. Not a bigger house. Not more obedient children. Not more submissive wife. Not a harder working husband. You need to taste the goodness of the Lord. You need to crave it. Well, you might say, well, then why don't I? I have tasted that he's good. Why don't I crave God? Simply, simple. I don't crave God when I feast on sin, self-love, and the ways of the world. It's an alternate meal. And this is the way, listen, this is the way of the imposter. This is what it means, literally, to live out of a false identity that you spent your whole life manufacturing. And look what Peter says right away in verse 1. Put away. It's like when I'm telling my kids, right? Put the cookies away. It's almost dinner time. I know if they feast on the cookies, they won't feast on the nutritious meal that their mother has prepared for them at dinner time. Put the cookies away. Peter is saying, put the garbage away. Put the false identity away. Put it away. What does it look like? So it's this. Put away, and first off, this is right on the heels of him telling, if you've been born again, you're born again for love, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? These things are all contrary to that identity. They're, they're going to destroy community. Let's keep looking. Put away all malice. Now, this is easy. Sometimes the Bible has to use specific words. Malice is a good word, but most of us are like, not malicious. Don't think I've ever been malicious, actually. Probably because you don't know what the word means, Right? It's a word that means, it's the word really that's the opposite of virtue. It's the word for vices. Badness. I like this one. This is the one that um, my Greek thesaurus gave me. Ill will. Do you have ill will towards people? Ill will? Just kind of wish that, you know, I don't wish they would die. Just, you know. A mild tragedy wouldn't do them bad. Doing, you know, it wouldn't be good for them. Just wishing, you know, demotion, just demotion, right? Peter says, put it away. It's not who you are, who you used to be. It's your fake self. It's the imposter trying to find his identity and what other, comparing himself to other people. Second one, he says, deceit, treachery, cunning. Trying to manipulate, figure out ways to get what you want. 
hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, we, most of us don't understand this because in the day and age, it wasn't necessarily a negative term. What they do up here on stage, uh, not today, but uh, in, in the plays, that's hypocrisy. They're playing a part. They're putting on a costume and they're playing a part. It's play acting. It's, I'm, you know, I'm acting like I'm Robin Hood, right? I'm not Robin Hood, but this is how I'm acting. Peter's saying here, he's using that term to saying, this is what it looks like to have a false self. Oh, you're the really religious moral person. Oh, that's your part you're playing. Oh, okay. I, I see. Oh, you're... Oh, you're the really successful business owner that doesn't have any problems. Oh, okay, that's, that's the, that's, oh, you're the perfect mother and everything you have is organic. Okay, uh, that's, that's who you are right now. Goes on, envy, jealousy. This is the Greek lexicon says this, he called it heart burnings. Heart burnings. I'm like, I don't really feel envious, but my heart burns when my name, you know, I get that heart burning. Just a little frustration with where you're at in life, right? Other people are driving the vehicle that you want to be driving, living in the neighborhood you want to be living in. You know, you followed the path and you should be here, but you're not there yet. And so your heart burns. Maybe even those in your missional community, your heart burns towards an envy and jealousy. They've got an easier path than you had. And lastly, he says, slander. Just gossip. Malicious speech. Speaking negatively of someone. And they're not there. Now listen, Peter's saying, you are babies. Crave mother's milk. Don't crave these things. Put these things away. And I said, what do I long for? What do I crave that produces these, this malice and this deceit and this hypocrisy and this envy and this slander? What am I craving? What am I feasting on that creates this in my life? It's easy. It's self-love of my false self. I've determined who I want to be and I'm working really hard to be that man and I want other people to see that man and I want other people to like that man. I want other people to love that man. I want to love that man. I want people to love the manufactured me. The one I built through my schooling, through my accomplishments, through my purchases. And listen, that's not the real you. And God doesn't love that you. Do you realize that you doesn't even exist? It's not even in the mind of God to fake you, the figment of your imagination. And you want people to act like it exists and you want to act like it exists. It's not. It's not real. God doesn't love that you. God loves the real you. God says, I don't love that person because they don't even exist. I love the real you, the one who needed rescue, the one who needed salvation because you couldn't get things figured out you couldn't find God on your own. You were born dead in your sins and trespasses, but God made you alive through the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the you that God loves. And listen, if you've tasted Him, if you've tasted His goodness, you'll crave more of it. 
And if you crave more of it, you'll feast on it. And if you feast on it, you'll grow. That's the logical flow of this passage. There's no tips. There's no tricks. This really frustrates many of us who just want to figure things out. Taste Him. Crave Him. Eat of Him. And you'll grow. That's it. And you'll grow by realizing you are the beloved of God. I'll pray. Father, everything, nearly everything in our life pushes against this concept. The thought that I can be sinful and be loved by you how could you love a sinner? It's a good question. You can love a sinner like us because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life in our place. You don't have to judge us. You don't have to pour out your wrath on us because you poured out your wrath on the one who took our place. We don't have to prove ourselves because Jesus proved himself to you for us. And because of his perfect standing, his perfect righteousness, toward us. We get your grace. We get to be called the beloved of God. And though it might make us squirm this morning, the thought of being infants, being eternally dependent upon you, that in one sense we never grow out of our spiritual infancy. In one sense, we're always totally and utterly dependent upon you and your goodness towards us and your grace towards us in Jesus. And there is no next step in discipleship other than the more dependence upon you. Father, I ask that you would give us a taste, that we wouldn't be like the young man in the story that, de- that decides whether you love us or not based on the circumstances of our life. When things are going well, we say God's pleased with us. I'll be generous to him. But when things are taken away from us, we say there must be something wrong with me. God must be against me. Let us always look to the cross that convinces us once and for all that God is eternally for us. God eternally loves us and that we are his beloved. And let that word settle down the crooked and bent places of our soul and bring a satisfaction that nothing else will. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we come for milk. We come for milk. We come for your body. We come for your blood. We come for you to speak a better word over us, to remind us who we are, that we're loved and forgiven and cherished and beloved. And we know it because the price you paid to adopt us, the price of your son's life, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the cup of the new covenant. Shed the remission of our sins. <coughs> and Lord, we come with open hands and we receive your body and we receive your blood this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>
Listen, hold on. Before I go, I don't explain things often. Like, there's some people here that you're like, okay, what just happened? Um, there's nothing for you to do. Please hear me. I could have an altar call right now. I could have you raise your hand and bow your head and close your eyes and pray right after me. Except that's not in the Bible. I want you to taste. How do you taste? Ask him. If you've never tasted, ask him. Let me taste, Lord. Let me taste. Let me taste. Ask him. Right? And then if you have tasted, what are you going to do? You're going to taste again. Come down here. Turn from our sins. Put your faith in Christ. What I want to happen, I pray, has already happened. While I was preaching, Spirit moved your heart to say, God, I want to feel that love. God, I want to be beloved. There's nothing for you to do. Nothing. Believe on the Lord Jesus.